The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is the Lawfare Archive. Hello, this is Lawfare intern Ajay Sarma with a podcast from the Lawfare Archives for June 27, 2021. On Wednesday, the Russian Ministry of Defense reported that a patrol ship fired warning shots at a British warship en route to Georgia that it alleged had entered Crimean territorial waters, water that Russia claimed as its own after its 2014 annexation of Crimea. But this is just the latest sign of tensions between U.S. allies and Russia, another major nuclear power. For today's episode from the archives, I went back to July 2015 to revisit a Brookings panel discussing Russia's nuclear threats during the 2014 Crimea crisis. Lawfare listeners will be able to understand the role that aggressive deterrence plays in Moscow's foreign policy toolbox, especially when it comes to defending its claim of sovereignty over Crimea. You're listening to an event podcast from the Brookings Institution. For more in-depth discussion with Brookings experts, subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria podcast, also on iTunes and on our website at brookings.edu slash bcp. Uh, thanks for coming to uh, Brookings, and uh, I know it's a very hot day, so you, uh, you made it through, and uh, you're, we're very proud to welcome you to the what we're reliably told is the second most popular event at Brookings at this moment. Um, uh, this event... Um, comes a little bit from some of the discussions that we've had on our our blog, um, on the Order from Chaos blog, uh, particularly from Pavel and from Steve, on what all of these uh, Russian nuclear threats really that we've been hearing in the last several months really mean. You know, it's a sort of interesting feature of uh, discussion in Washington right now that uh, there is a tremendous amount of focus on uh, nuclear negotiations with Iran, which, w- which, uh, are, which are premised on the fact that it's really very important for the world to worry about the possibility that uh, a, an irrational country might acquire nuclear weapons. At the same time, we're hearing uh, threats from uh, leaders in Moscow who already possess several thousand nuclear weapons, and maybe paying a little bit less attention. So we wanted to rectify that balance a little bit in our own tiny little way. Um, And I think we have a a really excellent panel uh, to do that here today. Um, First on my right is uh, Pavel Baev, who's um, research director at PRIO, which is the Peace Research Institute of Oslo, 
and also a uh, non-resident senior fellow here at Brookings. So he's part of our broader family. Um, uh, uh, to my left is Steve Pfeiffer, who is, um, had every position I could name in the U.S. government um, and is also a senior fellow here in our arms control initiative and director of our arms control initiative. Uh, and on my far left is Hans Christensen, who is the director of the Nuclear Information Project at the Federation of American Scientists. Uh, and so what we're going to do is we're going to start with Pavel, who's going to give us, I think, a little bit of sense about what, uh, what the meaning of all these Russian nuclear threats that we've been hearing in recent months are. Pavel? Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you for your kind words. It's a privilege to be here, and I'm very glad about this opportunity to share with you all uh, not that much my uh, analysis, but more probably my worries because what we are observing uh, in Russian behavior as far as nuclear matters are concerned is very worrisome. And suddenly we rediscover again that nuclear matters matter because um, you know, there is a lot of nuclear weapons. We know that. We know many things about uh, nuclear capabilities. There are some things we don't know, uh, particularly as far as non-strategic weapons are concerned. That's a big black, a black hole in the whole uh, problematic. But as far as far uh, as knowing what uh, constitutes the subject matter is concerned, we know quite a lot, and probably my colleagues on the panel will be able to feel you better about, uh, about the, uh, the known variables. And I will try to address the very difficult question of why. What's the point? Where Putin is going at and what can we expect from that? And again, it is very speculative. I don't really have an access to his uh, internal brain works. I don't have much of an insight in how the uh, very tight circle of his aides and courtiers work. Uh, it is something I, uh, I try to infer. And my answer on the question of why comes in two parts. And I hope to be wrong on both, by the way on both accounts. The first part of the answer has a very simple name of color revolution. Uh, Putin is obsessed with the threat of color revolution, which uh, comes in different uh, kinds and shades. There were suddenly protests in the streets of Moscow when he was assuming presidency out of nothing. Uh, quite a shocking thing. He took care, very carefully care of that. But again, this uh, specter of revolution has not disappeared. It's looming some, some, uh, here and there. It's suddenly coming up in Armenia, and Putin is saying what's happening in Armenia is certainly uh, plotted and in Washington manipulated uh, down to the every move from there. And that is uh, very much how he perceives the uh, threat of color revolution. And that is why nuclear weapons are relevant in this context, because otherwise... If you think revolutions happen because the, uh, the elites are uh, unable to contain the public protest, nuclear weapons are irrelevant. But if, you, if your mindset is that the color revolutions are something plotted, organized, sponsored by Washington, then suddenly nuclear weapons come into play. And you push again and again the line. Do you really want a regime change in Moscow? Do you really want to play with this catastrophic scenarios of huge nuclear superpower falling apart? Yes, it has happened before. Soviet Union did fall apart. I am no Gorbachev, says Putin. I will not be sitting uh, idly and watching how it happens. I will fight for that. And uh, the fight can turn very ugly. 
and nuclear weapons will be there. Uh, do you want really to play with this sort of scenarios? So it, nuclear card becomes a deterrent in his head against the uh, threat of color revolutions uh, projected, created, manipulated from the West, from Washington in particular. And uh, it's very difficult to dissuade him, but at least uh, this part of the answer doesn't really contain necessarily immediately uh, risks of, su of such intensity that we would, don't know how to deal with that. Even if it's impossible to dissuade him against that, we don't really see uh, signs that situation in Russia <coughs> suddenly goes out of control. It might. It's, those situations are impossible to predict. They cannot predict them in Kremlin, uh, in Kremlin as well. But nevertheless, it's hardly anything uh, anybody can do about that because, uh, well, revolutions are revolutions. <coughs> they happen. And if somebody thinks about deterring them this way, uh, well, it's just another, uh, another blunder in the, in the many annals of the failure to contain revolutions. The second part of my answer, however, is, is somewhat more uh, material, let's say, because it, it is rests on the, on, on the fact that in the Russian very significant, very costly effort at modernizing the armed forces, which started uh, a little bit before Putin's return to the position of power in the, in the Kremlin in the year 11, essentially, from the very start of the year 11. A huge program of rearmament, very costly, was presented and approved for, uh, for the next 20, uh, 20 years. 10, it's a rolling program, uh, so uh, targets are shifting. But the main uh, timescale was 10 years. And in that program, the main priority is on modernizing strategic nuclear weapons. That sort of potential. Very costly programs were pushed forward in every component of these forces. First of all, certainly with nuclear submarines. And they are very costly, uh, costly items. Their missiles are costly. The submarines as such are costly. Uh, so, and that effort was sustained, and it's still sustained. In, on the context of Ukraine, you would think this investment is essentially a mistake. That priority in all your uh, military modernization is a blunder because that's not what you need in this situation. If you have two more strategic submarines or two less, what sort of difference it makes for this crisis? If you have ten more battalions, that would make a difference. Nevertheless, they insist on that priority in their, uh, in their allocation of resources for nuclear modernization, for military modernization, probably because the programs are halfway through and you have this half-baked half product you still need to bring into some sort of fruition. And Putin is again saying, yes, we need to deploy these uh, 40 new missiles which creates a lot, of, uh, a lot of anxiety suddenly, while he's not saying anything new. In fact, last year he promised 50 missiles, not 40. And of those missiles, kind of at least 30, 32 in my count, are Bulava missiles, probably correct me uh, uh, if I am uh, wrong on that count. He's not saying anything new, but he is saying we're insisting on that priority. And having invested all these resources, having put all this effort into this very costly system, what is the output? What is the political dividend? None. In this, in this very tense situation with the West, these weapons are not really an asset. He cannot put them into play. And that creates certainly a lot of dissatisfaction. 
we have put all these resources, we invested all this money, and we cannot gain any, any profit on that. How to put that into play? He's trying this and he's trying that. Uh, there are a series of statements, certainly. There are some demonstrations. For instance, Russian strategic bombers uh, approached United States airspace on the 4th of July saying, Happy Independence Day. Uh, but it's not, that doesn't really amount to much. The bombers are really extremely old. And they are probably make good, good interception targets for U.S. Uh, for U.S. fighters, but hardly really much of a threat. The main threat they constitute is that they will crush. And that's certainly a very, uh, very unpleasant uh, proposition. What else? How else can you put this investment onto play? And I will not really try to suggest uh, an answer to that. It, I don't think the uh, good answer exists. My main worry in, in this context is about resumption of nuclear testing. It's still uh, something which can reasonably easily be done, and there are signs that the uh, nuclear test site on Nova Zemlya is becoming uh, reactivated. There are more troop deployments there. There are kind of some, uh, some construction go uh, going there. And you can do that without really a massive investment, and you are certain to create colossal political resonance, even if a nuclear weapon could be a very small yield. You don't need another side bomb of 50 megatons. You, you might do something very small with no environmental damage if you are very concerned about that. Nevertheless, the resonance will be certainly huge. And at least in that, uh, you might hope to harvest uh, some, uh, some political dividends from the nuclear, uh, nuclear might you, you possess and cannot really utilize. And as I said, I really, really hope I am wrong on that account. And that's my 10 minutes. <laughs> Thanks, Pavel. That was uh, sufficiently scary. Um, <laughs> Uh, Steve, I'm wondering, following up on that, if you could give us some sense of what the, what the Russian nuclear forces actually are and what they might be useful for. Yeah. Now, well, first, I, mean, I, I would agree with uh, Pavel. I think the thing that worries me most about the Russian nuclear stance is you have Vladimir Putin out there talking so much about nuclear weapons in a way that I think is uh, borderline irresponsible. But it's taking place in a context in which the Russians are doing a lot, as Pavel suggested, in terms of modernizing both their strategic and non-strategic nuclear forces. Now, some of these things are worrisome, some are not. Let me just go through uh, the programs uh, and describe what I think the United States needs to be concerned about. First of all, there's a lot going on in terms of the Russian strategic modernization program. Uh, they're deploying a new ballistic missile submarine, the Bore class. I think three have gone to sea now out of the planned program of eight. Uh, they are equipping that with a new submarine-launched ballistic missile, the Balava, and they're currently deploying two types of intercontinental ballistic missiles. And they've got more waiting in the wings. They have development programs ongoing for three additional intercontinental ballistic missiles, including a heavy ICBM to replace the SS-18, uh, and they're talking about reviving the idea of rail-mobile rail ICBMs, uh, which actually had, in the mid-1990s they decided really wasn't such a good idea. Uh, and the Air Force in Russia is talking about building a new bomber. Uh, they had been talking about building the PAC-DA, which they said would be a stealthy-type bomber. But it's been interesting, in the last month or so, they've talked about reviving the Blackjack production line. The Blackjack is the equivalent, or the Russian equivalent, of the American B-1. It was a bomber built 30 years ago. And the fact that they're talking about reviving that production line suggests to me that they're probably having some problem with the PAC-DA. 
so it looks like they're doing a lot, and they are doing a lot. Uh, but I don't think this is cause for great concern as long as two conditions apply. The first condition is that the United States and Russia continue to observe the new Strategic Arms Reductions Treaty, uh, which limits each side to no more than 700 deployed strategic ballistic missiles and heavy bombers, and limits each side to no more than 1,550 deployed strategic warheads. And even though there's a lot of tension between Washington and Moscow over Ukraine, uh, both sides continue to implement the treaty, and, and uh, inspections happen, data exchanges, it's all going forward relatively smoothly. And then the second condition is that the United States does what it needs to do to maintain its own strategic force, and I'll come back to that in a moment. But there are two or three things that lead me to be perhaps more relaxed about what the Russians are doing. First of all, a lot of it is simply playing catch-up. They're replacing aging systems, in many cases systems that they would have liked to have replaced 10 years ago. But there was a period really from about 1991 when the Soviet Union collapsed until around 2005, 2006, when the defense budget in Moscow didn't have any money. So they basically put their modernization programs on hold. Uh, and you saw it in over the course of 1991 to 2007, 2008, in a dramatic fall in the number of Russian strategic warheads that were deployed. Uh, and, and that continues. So if you look at the replacement programs, even today about half of the deployed strategic warheads on ballistic missiles are on SS-18, SS-19, and SS-25 intercontinental ballistic missiles. The 18s and the 19s should have been retired five or ten years ago. The SS-25 will be out of the force by 2020. Uh, so when Mr. Putin makes the, the announcement, well, I guess, three weeks ago about building 40 ICBMs, the press really got that one wrong. I mean, that wasn't... Uh, he was basically announcing the 2015 installment on a 10-year program that was approved four years ago when the, Soviet, when the Russians said, we're going to build 400 strategic ballistic missiles over the course of the next 10 years, and that roughly looked appropriate in terms of replacing what they had to replace in their strategic force. Uh, a second reason why I would argue we don't need to be so concerned is there's a focus now on Russian strategic force modernization, and it doesn't look like the United States is doing much. And that's going to change, because we and the Russians are on very different modernization cycles. Ten years from now, in 2025, the Russians will be done, except perhaps a new bomber, and the United States will be deploying a new ballistic missile submarine to replace the Ohio's, probably a new intercontinental ballistic missile, a new long-range strategic bomber, and probably a new nuclear air-launched cruise missile. So the momentum is going to be very different 10 years from now. A third point uh, is when you look at the force structures, um, there's also just very different design philosophies between the United States and Russia. The United States today has a single intercontinental ballistic missile and a single submarine-launched ballistic missile. And the Russians have a variety in both cases. Uh, and part of that, I think, is not necessarily a reflection of strategic considerations. Part of it is simply bureaucratic. It's farming out work to keep the different design bureaus in Russia occupied. So they end up building more missiles than they probably logically need. And there's also a difference in how they operate the force. The Russians will build a missile. They'll keep it in the force for 15 to 20 years. It ages out. They replace it and build a new one. Uh, the U.S. military has a different approach. Uh, we basically take the missile and we extend it. We put a new engine in it, maybe a new guidance system, and we'll keep the system in the force much longer. And I'll give you an example of the, the single American intercontinental ballistic missile now is the uh, Minuteman III, uh, originally designed to carry three warheads. They've all been now uh, downloaded to carry a single warhead. Minuteman III was first deployed in 1970. Uh, it will be retired in 2030. 
Now, the missiles that we return in 2030 are going to have different engines, different guidances, a lot will be modernized, but the missile frame basically was the same. The Russian equivalent to the Minuteman III was the S is the SS-25, a single warhead intercontinental ballistic missile. It was first deployed in 1985, and it will be out of the force by 2020. So its lifetime is going to be less than half of that of the Minuteman III. And that's, again, just the U.S. military has a different way of approaching these issues. Um, I'd also make the observation that newer is not always better. And compared in terms of submarine-launched ballistic missiles, the Bolava missile, which is now being deployed, was first tested in 2005, first deployed, I think, last year, I guess it went to sea. Again, the American counterpart is the Trident D-5. It was first tested in 1987, deployed in 1990. So, well, that's, that's an old missile. Look at the test history. The Balava has been tested about 25 times. 40% uh, of those tests have been failures, uh, one which rather spectacularly with President Vladimir Putin watching from a neighboring ship. Uh, you look at the Trident D-5, its record is now over 140 consecutive successful test flights. So uh, there's some differences here, and I, for all of the concerns sometimes are read about Russian strategic forces, I've yet to hear a senior American military officer say, I would sure like to swap American strategic forces for Russian strategic forces. And, and so uh, as long as you know, the American response should be go forward with the modernization program, I actually think budget considerations will lead us to perhaps doing less than what we would like to, or what, we, uh, what the Pentagon now would like to do. But I think it, we will be able to maintain a strategic force that balances the Russians. I'm more concerned on the non-strategic nuclear weapon side because, in part, we, we have less visibility there. But it does look like that the Russians want to maintain a panoply of weapons, land-based, ground-based, sea-based. Um, and it fits in with the doctrine, which sometimes you know, is, is not easy to understand. They talk about de-escalation theory and, and, and the use of low-yield nuclear weapons. And so, you know, what does this suggest? And I'm not sure we have a fully clear picture on that. And then there's a particular concern with regards to non-strategic nuclear weapons, which deals with uh, the Russian violation of the INF Treaty. Uh, the 1987 treaty banned all American and Soviet um, land-based missiles with ranges between 500 and 5,500 kilometers. And last year, uh, the U.S. government announced that the Russians have violated that treaty by testing a ground-launched cruise missile of intermediate range. Um, and this is in the context of Russians going back to, say, 2006, 2007, senior Russian officials saying, we're not sure about the efficacy of the INF Treaty because it bans just the Americans and the Russians, and we Russians worry because there are countries around us that are building intermediate-range missiles. And, and one of those senior officials to complain about that at one time was Vladimir Putin. Now, in terms of the U.S. response, I think, one, the, what the administration is trying to do for now is the rightest response, which is to try to bring the Russians back into full compliance with the treaty while preparing a set of response options if the Russians don't uh, come back into terms. Uh, in terms of actual non-strategic nuclear weapons, though, I do not see a need for the United States to match Russia either in the number of non-strategic weapons or the range. Um, in part because NATO looks at the idea of new tactical nuclear warfighting and basically says no. I mean, where do tactical nuclear weapons or non-strategic nuclear weapons fit in NATO strategy? It's basically you use it because it's a political signal to warn the other side that this conflict has reached the point where it's about to spin out of control and we don't know where it's going to go. And I would argue that in terms of what the United States already has in Europe, which are dual-capable aircraft and B-61 gravity bombs, that suffices for that mission. And the F-16s that there are due to be replaced by F-35s, and the B-61 bomb, it looks like, will be modernized. So I don't see 
an urgent need to match the Russians in terms of numbers or range of non-strategic nuclear weapons. And I would actually argue that the best response for dealing with this problem in Europe is for the United States and NATO to take smart steps to maintain the conventional advantages that NATO now has in Europe, both in terms of quantity, but more importantly, in terms of quality of weapons. Because NATO wants to have the ability to indicate to an adversary that if necessary, you know, we're going to seek to deter you. If necessary, we can defeat you at the conventional level. And the nuclear question, let's push the issue of first use of nuclear weapons onto the Kremlin, because that's going to be a really hard decision to make. We don't want to have that decision. We want to leave that in the Russians' lap. Uh, thanks, Steve. That was somewhat less scary. <laughs> um, uh, Hans, given all the expense, why, why are the Russians undertaking this Russian this modernization program? Is it do you see it as a reaction to the to the United States? Well, um, it's partially a reaction to the general. Well, let me start by saying thank you for the invitation to come here and, and <laughs> participate in this. Of course, um, having done that, um, it is. Um, it is definitely a, a response to, partially a, a response to the strategic competition, if you will, between um, the United States and Russia. And I'm not talking about specific weapon systems. I'm talking about national prestige. Um, uh, the, the Russians over the last eight, nine years have been very, I think, obsessed almost with, with this issue of parity. Not necessarily in all the details of, of numbers and what have you, but that what they secured, and this is one of the reasons they are still so very interested in maintaining the New START Treaty, is that it actually lends them some level of parity in the strategic realm, at least. So I think there's a general interest in, um, in maintaining Russian prestige. Um, what, what that leads to remains to be seen, but I think um, it's harder if you have to take from what's been said in the Russian uh, by commentators, government officials, and try to figure out if, if there are military thinking about what their objectives are. Um, the point being that um, my task here is to talk about, you know, U.S. forces that might drive Russian concerns. And frankly speaking, it's, it's hard to say that there is the one they're really, uh, you know, worried about, if you will. Um, it's more an overall strategic, um, uh, you know, relationship, I think. Um, but of course, as soon as you start talking to individual Russians about this, what is what is the military capability that you are, you know, mostly concerned about? I mean, there's no doubt that they're mo mostly concerned about very capable uh, forces, such as specifically the Trident II D5 uh, ballistic missile, very capable system, as Steve mentioned, uh, very successful, very reliable. Um, because of the fact that it can sneak up on a coast and very quickly launch a, a large number of weapons. Now, over here, that's not really something we entertain <laughs> uh, in our strategic thinking, but to a worst-case scenario of Russian strategists, that is absolutely real. Um, bombers, cruise missiles sneak in, launch onto the radar, so to speak. Um, recently, some remarks about dual-capable aircrafts in Europe although I don't really think that is the military issue. That sounds more like an opportunistic political kind of debate they, they're having right now, and they're also being wrong about what they said about it, but that's another matter. Um, but so we look at the overall force structure and what the Russians are doing with them. I think one of the most interesting uh, developments right now is what they're doing on their ICBMs, especially the mobile ICBMs. And 
what we're seeing is that they're beginning to deploy them out in the field in significantly longer periods of time than they used to do just you know, a few years ago. Um, I don't know where it comes from or what the strategy is, but they, you know, does, it, does it imply that they're fe feeling uh, threatened and that therefore have to uh, get better at deploy these uh, systems into the, uh, in, into the open area? Um, or what, it, what is it? Uh, it's very hard to say, but that is an interesting, uh, I think, development that is underway. Um, ironically, if you ask U.S. military people about that development and the fact that they're focusing mu so much on mobile systems, they're saying, good. I mean, because it's a good thing that the Russian feel secure, if they feel secure, if they can get their weapons out and hide them and don't feel vulnerable to a surprise first strike. Um, which, if you look at the submarines, it's a similar uh, interesting development. They're going to eight, possibly more, but at least for now we have seen a plan to build eight ballistic missile submarines. But what's interesting about them is that the warhead loading capacity on the, the Boulevard ballistic missile is significantly bigger than that on the existing two missiles. Uh, so that for the overall force, um, if you just have an eight ballistic missile submarine force uh, of the new uh, Bora class versus the old Delta class, you're talking about a potential 60% increase in warheads that can be loaded on that force in the future. So what does that mean? What does that indicate? Is that just because they can do it? Or does it have a strategic meaning about well, we now feel really vulnerable on land, so we have to put more strategic assets out to sea. You know, does it show that they're not very concerned about U.S. attack submarines uh, capabilities? They used to be very concerned in the past, in the 1980s, about the maritime strategy going up and sinking U.S. Ballist uh, Russian ballistic missile submarines first, if you will, or early in a crisis. Um, does it indicate that they have sort of confidence that they can put these submarines into a bastion? Um, or what have you. So there, there are some interesting developments going on in the, in, in the postures, no doubt about it, but it's hard to say that this is because the Russians are really worried about this American nuclear weapon system or that one. Ironically, I think it's, it's more the case that, um, in terms of the, what the Russians are saying, that it's, that it's U.S. non-nuclear forces that concern them. Uh, because, and that spans widely. We've certainly heard uh, a lot of that over the last 10 years, from conventional prompt global strike capabilities that they see could sort of, you know, balloon into a large capacity, but the U.S. military is not interested in having a large conventional prompt uh, capacity, ballistic missile defense systems that could take out enough of their uh, strategic missiles, what have you, um, precision-guided conventional uh, cruise missiles, for example, that can go in and very accurately take out with, with much more capable conventional warheads than in the past, um, uh, strategic systems, for example, nuclear systems as well. So they're very obsessed with this imp you know, imparity, if you will, in the strategic balance or potential imparity uh, in the strategic balance. And so for, for NATO and for the United States in terms of responding to, to Russia, that creates, a, in my view, a huge dilemma because right now in Europe, what is it or how is it that NATO has responded to Russia's uh, aggression? Well, it is with conventional forces, of course, moving them further east, uh, pre-positioning of equipment, larger exercises across the board. Um, uh, still a very far cry from, from the kind of force structure uh, deployments that were in the past. Um, but it feeds into the Russian, I think, perception that NATO is going to increase its nuclear superiority um, and that they would be worse off in the future in those types of scenarios. 
And therefore, perhaps, is what we're seeing um, with them trying to maintain non-strategic nuclear forces at the level that they are, and also uh, potentially developing a new ground-launch cruise missile. And I remember Ashton Carter, he was asked about that in Congress recently, you know, how does that ground-launch cruise missile fit into the Russian strategy or perception? And he says it, it seems to fit into their way of using um, uh, non-strategic nuclear weapons to offset um, NATO conventional uh, superiority. So that's just to say I think it's hard to find sort of clear-cut cases where, where a U.S. nuclear weapon system is really spoofing the Russians these days and, and, and making them do all sorts of things um, or driving the nuclear modernization. I think that is more an, a general overall parity national prestige issue. Um, I think the dynamic is much more in the effect of more advanced conventional weapons. Thanks, Hans. I'll, I'll term that medium scary. Um, the Pavel... What we just heard, I think, from to a degree from both Steve and Hans, is in the sort of in the sort of logic of deterrence. The Russian nuclear modernization isn't terribly scary in the sense that they can fit it into the deterrence models, and it can it could conceivably be um, an enhancing of stability uh, in that way. Um, you at at one point in your in your writings on this for us mentioned that. Uh, Putin and those people around him really don't understand nuclear deterrence. And I'm wondering if you see elements of that in, in Putin's nuclear threats and, in, and maybe even in a deeper way in, in some of the actual actions that he might be taking uh, on the ground. Certainly, there is a long tradition of nuclear deterrence, and uh, a lot of lessons are learned through, sometimes through very uh, risky uh, situations. And we know how to construct balances. And again, we have the arms control, uh, which still holds despite uh, despite all uh, all the crisis. What and there, there were people in Russia who were really going through uh, this school of nuclear deterrence uh, stage, stage after stage, but you cannot find these people in Putin's inner circle. You know, uh, whatever you think about the, uh, the uh, this combination of uh, individuals, that fun, one fact we know for sure that they have no experience uh, in the uh, in the in the school of deterrence. And I would even say that even among the top brass, there used to be a very influential lobby uh, which were kind of, um, pushing forward the agenda related to, first of all, uh, land-based strategic forces. And that lobby is practically gone through uh, the process of uh, military reform, uh, one purge after another, and the new defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, really brought in many new people with combat experience. He prefers uh, veterans and warriors to mil uh, military bureaucrats. But even for this uh, kind of top brass, uh, the nuclear weapons are entirely foreign matter. Uh, they never really um, uh, given it a thought or trained in any way to use them. Uh, that's where I think uh, Putin's only uh, moment when suddenly uh, nuclear weapons were uh, in, co in consideration of a crisis came back in the year 99 when he just arrived to the uh, Moscow politics, made a member of Security Council, and it was a cause of a crisis. 
and Yeltsin was kind of uh, at the beginning at least uh, stating it very aggressively, you should not forget Russia is a nuclear power, we uh, cannot be ignored, and to all intents and purposes Russia was ignored. And all the nuclear weapons proved to be completely irrelevant uh, in that situation. Uh, so Russia had to swallow its objections and made itself a part of the solution for Kosovo, uh, after all, which probably, again, is part of the uh, uh, political baggage Putin is, is still carrying. That uh, there are situations where suddenly you don't know how to put them into play. We need to invent something. We need to be creative in the this regard, we need to find a way to um, not just to, to make loud statements about our missiles and capabilities, but somehow to turn them into political assets, to deploy Iskanders into Kaliningrad, then to withdraw them, to do something else uh, in this regard. But the uh, sober calculations, very specific calculations of risks, of measures and countermeasures, of what nuclear weapon system are capable of uh, doing what, I think for him it is still um, an absolutely uh, a matter in which he says doesn't have even a superficial knowledge and do not rely on aides and advisors who have the idea about that. Okay. Um, thanks. Steve, um, we, we've heard that, uh, that uh, from both you and, and Hans that there is a, a, a pretty stark conventional superiority now on the, on the U.S. side, uh, and that in part this is what the Russians uh, are responding to. It would follow from that, and you, you alluded to this a little bit, that uh, because any conflicts are likely to, at least in the early stages, be conventional, that um, that the Russians might seek to compensate for that by integrating their very large tactical arsenal, tactical nuclear arsenal, into their conventional warfighting doctrine plans. Do we see any signs of that? Is that something that you think about or worry about? Well, it, it, it's a hard question to know the answer to. Uh, if you look at Russian military doctrine, at least the unclassified version, unfortunately I haven't yet had a chance to read the classified version, but basically the 2015 version and the 2010 version had identical language on when Russia would resort to nuclear weapons. And it was in two cases. One, if there were an attack with weapons of mass destruction against Russia or Russian ally, Russia reserved the right to use nuclear weapons. Or if there was an attack on Russia, not an ally, but on Russia itself, with conventional forces in which the existence of the state was at stake, then there was this reservation. Now, that's basically NATO policy from the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, or 1970s and 80s, when NATO dealt with a period of conventional inferiority towards the Russians. So it's hard to get too excited about that. There's this other question, though, and it's hard to peg down. This Russian idea, it's called the de-escalation theory. Um, and it's not clear to me how official or formal this is a part of Russian policy. I, I was actually at a track two conversation about a month ago where five Russians who were pretty knowledgeable said de-escalation in no way is connected to formal Russian doctrine. But the idea there is that if there were a conventional conflict and Russia were to begin to lose using a small number of low-yield nuclear weapons, uh, and uh, the, the question here is that the literature is not clear what the intent of that would be. 
the benign interpretation is that you use a couple of nuclear weapons, basically to signal the other side, this thing's about ready to get out of control. We need to stop. Again, very similar to NATO policy and the political intent that Nate would be, I think, behind any consideration by NATO of use of nuclear weapons. But then there are also other uh, explanations which seem to suggest that you know, maybe the Russians would see some military advantage, and so that it might be integrated in a military way. Now, it, it's hard to get a good read on that because you, know, you, you go back and you look at uh, some of the things that came out after the collapse of the Soviet Union, and in, in Soviet thinking, Warsaw Pact thinking, seemed to basically say, once you cross that line and use a nuclear weapon, then all bets are off, and the expectation is probably very fast escalation to very large numbers of weapons, which suggests you know, keeping a few weapons and using them in a controlled manner uh, may not be all that easy. But you know, these are one of these things that I don't think we have a good fix in the unclassified world on and where the Russians are. Well, just to, to make that maybe a little bit more concrete, because I think we've heard in in some of our sessions that we've had here over the past uh, several months, some some concern from U.S. officials about um, about the possibility of a Baltic scenario where, uh, and there's a few different variants of this, but one variant that I know you've heard is that there is a, a, a sort of lightning Russian strike into to take whatever they want from the Baltics and then a, and then a threat to respond with nuclear weapons if there's a counter strike that would use Western conventional superiority. How does how does that scenario fit into what you yeah. just said? No, I, I, I've been to a couple of sessions where, where people worry about that. Yeah. Um, and, and, again, it, it's one of those things that uh, if there were ever a NATO-American conventional invasion into Russia, which I don't see happening, uh, I, I could in that circumstance envisage that the Russians might consider use of tactical nuclear weapons if they were to lose. But it's a very different scenario if you say the Russians take an offensive and say seize half of Estonia and then tell NATO if you attack or counterattack with conventional forces we will escalate to the nuclear level um, that's a pretty big bet uh, because while you might think it would be very implausible and I, 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 it's hard for me to conceive of circumstances in which an American president would use nuclear weapons if there had not been use of nuclear weapons against the United States or against an American ally, if you had the use of Russian nuclear weapons to defend ill-gotten gains in the NATO territory, I, I think an American nuclear response would actually be quite plausible. Uh, so that that it, it's a, it's something I think people ought to think about, but I'm not sure it's a plausible scenario. It's it's a really risky bet for the Russians to be banking. And that's why I would argue that the correct response to dealing with what the Russians are doing in terms of their modernization effort, both at the tactical nuclear level and at the conventional level in the European area, is not try to match them with non-strategic nuclear weapons, is maintain NATO conventional advantages. Because again, if somebody's going to have to make that decision to first use nuclear weapons, let's have the Russians make that decision, because it's going to be a really hard one. Okay. Um not sure how great I feel about them making the decision either, but I see your point. Um, Hans, the, uh, Steve just sort of emphasized the importance of, of U.S. Western conventional forces in this balance, and you, you very much emphasize that, that's, that that seems to be what the Russians are responding to. Do the Russians have a, a point here? I mean, are, are U.S. conventional forces actually reaching a level of sophistication where they threaten the Russian 
deterrent, and I'm referring not just to the cruise missiles, but also the, the, the case that the Russians make so often that the ballistic missile defenses uh, threaten their deterrent? Well, I certainly don't think on the strategic level, if you will, as sort of a non-nuclear decapitating capability against the Russian nuclear forces. Absolutely not. Um, but I think it's what, what – when the Russians get into this conversation, it seems to me that it has more to do with uh, sort of smaller scenarios where something could happen and suddenly over here we cannot hold the line or whatever the situation might be. Um, I mean, there's obviously no doubt that a ballistic missile defense system uh, deployed in Europe cannot threaten the Russian ballistic missile force. Uh, it's just way beyond its capacity. Um, but, but Russian strategists might think that, well, gee, if we had a very limited scenario in which we had to use something, maybe not against the United States, but somewhere else, um, that there might be an effect. Um, I mean, here as well as there, you can very quickly design scenarios, worst-case scenarios, that pretty much puts you in any conclusion you want to reach. Um, and I think what's been frightening to see in this uh, East-West crisis here is that how quickly people on both sides, pundits and former officials and what have you, how quickly they have sort of caught on to it and come up with these scary scenarios um, and, and been willing to escalate. Uh, that, if, that phenomenon, frankly, is one of the most worrisome aspects of this, uh, that it is possible to go so far so fast. Um, so that should remind us of something about crisis stability issues as well. Um, but, on, but on the conventional, I don't, you know, when people ask, I mean, there was a case here just a few weeks ago or months ago where, you know, in, in response to the, uh, the Russian INF um, uh, violation claimed by U.S. State Department report, that the Pentagon came out with a response, I think, to Congress saying, uh, yeah, gee, we're now looking at options, you know, um, and they range from, you know, counter-force options to sort of, uh, you know, countervailing options to, you know, in-kind options, you know, a very long list of, of potential options that you could look at. And so very quickly, that turned into in the news media, media that the United States is considering deploying, um, a, you know, ground-launched cruise missiles in Europe again. And, and I remember, you know, getting a barrage of calls from um, Eastern European uh, news media and Russian news media. Is this really true? Is this really true? And, of course, it's not true. I mean, you, you knock on the door on every U.S. military planner, and that's the last thing they want to do. Uh, they see no need for that type of a response, even if Russia deploys um, a nuclear ground launch cruise missile in Europe. And it's very simple. Why not? Because, first of all, you didn't want to get into this political battle in Europe again about where is this thing going to go? <laughs> you know, and uh, public opposition to deployment of nuclear weapons, uh, we remember it. Um, but it's a hot potato politically. Um, but also militarily, I don't think they need it. And so the United States already have plenty of air-launched nuclear cruise missiles and conventional capabilities that can be brought to bear in such a situa situation. And you can very quickly move your bombers in. You don't have to have an army unit deployed over there. It costs a lot of money. Um, we still have tomahawks on the, on the submarines uh, with a very long range. 
Uh, the Air Force is developing several thousand uh, JASM cruise missile, conventional cruise missiles, of which a good portion will be uh, extended range with over uh, 1,100 kilometer range. Those are the kind of thing I think Russians worry about when they think limited scenarios around the border and, and where they can get pushed back or pushed in, uh, depending on who they are. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. So um, do you think that on, on the Western side that we need or that we have a, a, a mechanism for understanding and for integrating the... the um, strategic stability aspects of conventional systems into our planning? I'm not sure how far we, we've, we've gone on it. Um, uh, the latest nuclear guidance from the uh, Obama administration released in 2013 uh, is on several levels specific about a requirement that uh, U.S. planners uh, planning strategic and regional plans should uh, rely more on advanced conventional weapons um, and that nuclear weapons sort of can be moved more into the background, not in the overall mission, so to speak, or the core mission, but that in scenarios, contingencies, they need to rely more on conventional weapons if they can. And so I think that that's not a new development, but it's interesting to see it so clearly in the guidance. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, basically, that has been a trend ever since the end of the Cold War. Um, and we've gradually seen more advanced conventional weapons moving closer up into the strategic um, effects um, package uh, of U.S. military <laughs> capabilities. So I think that's a, that's a development that's in full swing, and it's not going to stop. It is, a, is at the core of what the United States military wants to do on a global scale, not just with Russia, but, but everywhere. So I think that is going <laughs> to continue to drive and be an irritant in, in the eyes of those uh, in the Russian military planning community that want to be irritated about it. <laughs> of which there are plenty, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> Okay, well, why don't we uh, go to the audience, and we'll, uh, we'll take, um, I think, a, a couple of questions at a time. Um, and so please catch my eye, and when uh, there should be a microphone going around, and when the microphone um, gets to you, please uh, <coughs> identify yourself um, and, um, you know, be sure to actually ask a question. Um, so uh, this gentleman right here. Thank you. Uh, Anthony Odi, formerly with the World Bank. As an outsider to this field, I was meant to be, you know, in the other meeting over there. Um, <laughs> what, most, that a lot. what most surprised me 
was the statements about the West enjoying an advantage on the conventional side. And, you know, my ears prick up because I'm hearing about European countries, including, I'm afraid, my own, having trouble meeting the 2% defense spending target. If I understand you correctly, you are not talking about chaps in tanks. You are talking about <coughs> clever ways of offsetting chaps in tanks, including missiles and so on, uh, that can offset them. Am I getting that right? Who wants to address that? I'll, I'll take the first question. Yeah. I, I think in large part because not only on the nuclear side but on the conventional side, there was this 15-year period from 91 to 2005 where the Russian army didn't get much of anything. Uh, and, and so NATO and the United States have very significant qualitative advantages, but also still have in, in the European area conventional numerical advantages. Now, the Russians have a very active conventional modernization program ongoing, and if NATO doesn't think about things in three or four years, it may see some of its advantages erode. Uh, so it, it has to pay a little bit more attention to this question, I think, now, given the sort of behavior you've seen in Russia over the last uh, 18 months with regards to Ukraine and a readiness, at least there, to use force. So it's an advantage. It's one that the Russians would like to erode. My guess is the Russians will have more luck in terms of coming to something of parity in terms of numbers, but I think it's going to be a difficult or a more difficult issue for the Russians to come up and catch up with the United States and with NATO in terms of the quality of some of the precision-guided weapons that, uh, that Hans was referring to. But there, there's two other aspects to his um, chaps and tanks question. Uh, the first is the, is the chaps, yeah. by which he means, I think, Europeans. And uh, we've <laughs> been a little bit, um, or a certain kind of European, um, we've been a little bit um, vague when we say this, when, we, when we've been tending to say Western. Are, are we saying that this is really... Uh, in the context of all the defense cuts we've seen in Europe recently, really an American capability, and the Europeans are just sort of along for the ride. And the second aspect is the tanks, which is that this is we're not really talking about the sort of traditional armored formations. We're talking about advanced conventional weapons that tend to be sort of be controlled from trailers in Nevada and fly uh, and, and fly at remote distances. Is that is that correct? I think it's a mix of both. My guess is that behind closed doors, uh, when he was in uh, Brussels for the defense minister's meeting, that Secretary Carter made a big pitch to say to the Europeans, you know, you have to up your defense spending, too, on the conventional side, that if, if we're going to preserve the advantages that NATO has in the conventional area, it can't just be the United States. And, and certainly there will be a response will be a mix of some very advanced systems, uh, but also that you saw when Secretary Carter was in, in Brussels, uh, it's going to be some of the old system tanks. I mean, we're, the big news I, that came out of uh, the meeting was that uh, the United States had sent to Europe an armored brigade. And this was the first time in a year and a half that you actually had American tanks in Europe, with the exception of a small number for training purposes at a training ground in Germany. And those tanks, uh, that brigade did exercises in the Baltic region in Poland for about three months. And when they wrapped up, the troops came home, uh, but the tanks, the infantry fighting vehicles, the heavy artillery, and the thousand other associated vehicles are staying behind. They're going to be prepositioned in Poland, <laughs> Romania, Bulgaria, and the Baltic states. So there is a certain aspect of beginning to deploy some of the traditional aspects of conventional military power, but also putting them in the eastern part of NATO, 
both to send a signal to Moscow, but also to be reassuring to those governments. Yes, I think it's a good question about chaps and tanks. And I think it it's also <laughs> reflects on the uh, larger question, is it a new Cold War? Are we facing the same uh, sort of situation? And one significant difference is that I do remember that old Cold War when the, in Eastern Germany alone uh, it was half a million Soviet troops deployed. That was a lot of chaps and tanks. And now you hear on the borders of Ukraine, Russia is amassing 50,000 troops. It is an order of magnitude lower. Even in Russia, you see kind of a, a lot less of uh, possibility to, uh, to deploy chaps and tanks. And there is no second echelon for that matter. But besides chaps and tanks, and what Russia is very worried about, there are now drones. And that's a weapon system against which Russia has no countermeasure, no ability to balance, and is very worried about. Because they're cheap, they can be produced in large numbers, and Russia doesn't know how to counter that. Long-range strike drones. Uh, in principle, technology is not uh, that complicated. But Russia is arguing, in essence, it's the same weapon system as a land-based cruise missile. And there is a point in, into that argument. It's impossible to make the point stick on legal ground. But that's suddenly another dimension of the, of the whole uh, war where Russia feels exposed, vulnerable, unable to, uh, to balance and to deploy anything which would uh, resemble that capability. Well, um, just in addition to that, the, I mean, there's no doubt that for the foreseeable future, <laughs> the United States is going to enjoy um, an overwhelming conventional capability and capacity, um, not just in military force, but also in, in R&D um, and further development. Um, um, I think even if all the NATO countries pay 2%, it, it's not going to change that fact. I mean, I think that issue is more about what, um, you know, what it's prudent to do, or, you know, everybody should, should you know, pay their share or whatever the decision is at any given time. But I think... One of the things that characterized NATO's defense spending over the last uh, you know, decade is that it has actually spent a lot of its money that was intended for R&D improvements and, and maintenance on the war in Afghanistan, uh, so, so, you know, sustaining the forces that were sent over there, flying it, whatever, whatever. So suddenly you have a, you have a problem that you have sort of hollowed out that chest, so to speak, uh, by not doing that while you were over there. And so I think that's another issue. What we've seen with Russia is that the... You, well, what really seems to make NATO uh, planners nervous right now is, is this sort of trend that Russia is building the capacity, seems to be building a capacity to move large number of troops, uh, you know, relatively quickly f uh, back and forth along the border. Um, you, know, you, know, you know, one month they'll be down off, uh, you know, Ukraine. Uh, the next minute they'll go up north for an exercise, et cetera. You know, tens of thousands of troops uh, you know, to, to amass them quickly. And so, but that's not modern warfare. That's just like moving a lot of troops, you know. It doesn't really say anything about what can they do in a modern battlefield. Um, and so one of the things that the U.S., for example, is working on, you mentioned drones, is that instead of drones flying in and taking out that Toyota with the terrorist or, you know, something like that, we're now beginning to plan for mass drone attacks where mm -hmm. drones work together in, in, in a large formation going in. Uh, it's not gotten very far, but we're talking, we're, we're talking about development of software and capabilities in the range of 20 to 50 
drones going in at the same time, uh, that type of stuff. So that's, that's underway now, and I can tell you the Russians will be worried about that, <laughs> absolutely. Um, but even though the Russians have a modernization program underway, think about the different components. Ballistic missile submarines, ICBMs, bombers, tactical fighter aircraft, SU-34, uh, Iskander missile deployment integration into the uh, systems, new attack submarines, uh, 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 the, the caliber uh, uh, sea launch uh, cruise missile, uh, conventional force developments, uh, including replacing, it seems, uh, over the next decade, the entire um, uh, armored tank uh, inventory, um, uh, armored vehicle inventory, um, command and control systems with a new focus on, on, on border security, et cetera, et cetera. This is an enormous project that I frankly do not believe they can, they can lift, okay? And there's something about, I think, the Russian way of talking about these things that if you listen to what they're saying, it's always about, well, next year it will be 100% bigger. You know, we'll have double the number of missiles. It's always this kind of, you know, you know chest-thumping type of uh, uh, way of talking about it. You know, the proof is in the pudding. We'll see what comes out uh, later on. Um, but I think uh, if, you use, if you hear the U.S. intelligence community, they're still saying that even with the current modernization program, in a decade, the Russian military forces will still be overwhelmingly dominated by Soviet air equipment. I, guess I just had that's one of the pieces that is, you know, who's manning the equipment? And, well, I think we've seen in the last 18 months that, in, certainly in Crimea, <clears throat> special forces, airborne, are very good. I, they, they put a lot of attention to those forces, and that traditionally those were the forces that got the best equipment, the most trending money. But if you then go to the regular Russian army, uh, as I said, probably half of the enlisted personnel are still conscripts, uh, and the conscription tour now in Russia is one year. You know, so you, you really have to, under, you know, in terms of the quality of the people, to sort of operate in what would be a hopefully an environment that they never have to face and we never have to face. You know, but uh, not with a lot of training and experience. Uh, okay, up here in the second row. Um, hi, hello. Um, my name is Maciej Lemka. I'm a currently Georgetown University graduate student, and I'm with NTI, a Nuclear Threat Initiative. And my question is more about a uh, disarmament process. And, well, we've experienced... We know the most recent um, uh, review conference, which wasn't really uh, satisfying. And in that respect, how do you see this Russian rhetoric impacting further disarmament process and you know towards the next review conference? Because people are very much afraid that we're going to fail again. The international community will fail again at another RAFCON. And how can you? How do you see? Um, how do you see that um, playing out? Why don't we uh, take one more question across the aisle there? And then Hi, uh, Mohammed Omar. I'm also a grad student uh, uh, currently at FAS. Um, my question is, and kind of touched on this, that Russia is spending a lot of money. Um, is that sustainable? Um, uh, and how are they how are they getting the resources? Thank you. <laughs> I think else. we know the answer to that second question. Uh, uh, who wants to take that? Um, those questions. 
Well, I'd love to talk about um, the first aspect of it. Um, Well, so there are two issues to it, I think. Um, There's one about sort of the prospect of um, the the impact on force numbers, if you will. And there's another element of it that has to do with the impact of the current crisis on the future development of nuclear forces. If you look at the first part of it, the prospect for further reductions, then I think uh, there, there's no indication that the United States or Russia will start to increase the number of nuclear weapons. Even, even with the current uh, modernization programs, the trend is south. And so that will continue. Um, <laughs> even though Congress here doesn't like the word unilateral reductions, you, unilateral reductions of the stockpile are embedded in, it is implicit in the modernization program the U.S. is now embarking on. So it'll happen. Um, Russia, even with this modernization program on ballistic missiles and submarines, um, you know, they will have fewer of them in the future in terms of overall force level. They're not going to go over the New START tree. The one area where I can see that there could be potential level, but, but in a way that's a, good, I, that's a good thing, is in the number of how many, how many warheads could you put on ballistic missiles. Uh, in the future you could potentially get into a situation, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but you could get into a situation where suddenly because you build systems that are more heavily merved, the overall force, or like the submarines that can carry more warheads, um, that you could get into, that you would have to take some of them off and not have full load in order to stay in compliance with the treaty. Um, but, you know, the U.S. is already deep in that kind of a posture. Russia, not so much. But who knows, in the future it might want to move in that direction where it has fewer weapons deployed, and more in reserve, if you will. Um, on the other aspect, I think um, I think the, um, the issue of the impact on force development is, is another challenge for the, the nonproliferation regime. And the reason I say this is because we're now seeing Russia finishing or getting into the final round of its strategic modernization. And we see the United States moving into its round of strategic modernization. And one issue that the NPT community as a regime has to struggle with is, well, if all the nuclear weapon states continue to modernize in perpetuity and talk about having nuclear weapons for you know, the major part of this century, does that, or to what extent does that, um, challenge uh, the, the obligations under Article 6 of the treaty of moving through negotiations toward uh, eventual elimination. Um, I think that issue is challenged on many levels, but it could the, the East-West crisis, and certainly also what's happening in the South China Sea, could make it easier for people to argue that you cannot reduce uh, too much or fundamentally change uh, nuclear force structures. Um, but again, I think the overall numbers are going south, but I think it's more on force structure that there is a continuing drift. Do, do you worry about that having an impact on third country nuclear forces, either ones that exist or countries that don't currently have nuclear forces? Well, so I see that all the nuclear weapon states are looking at each other and seeing what they're doing. I mean, it's not just a parity issue. It's also um, getting ideas. I mean, we're seeing a new interesting development happening with, uh, with China that has just... Um, apparently, finally decided to put um, some <laughs> uh, merved warheads on its silo-based ballistic missiles. Not that the warheads are there in peacetime. I'm just I'm saying but the capability. Um, 
And we're seeing moves in India that is shifting its strategic force planning more towards China uh, than Pakistan, as it has been in the past. Um, and their defense planning community also beginning to entertain the thoughts of developing uh, MIRV capabilities. The Indian government has not made such a decision, at least to my knowledge, but, but I'm just saying I think all nuclear weapon states look to each other, you know, for what it is that you need to have to be um, safe and secure. But it's still very striking, I think, that when you look at all the nuclear weapon states, there's no, there's no other nuclear weapon state on the planet than Russia and the United States that believe you need more than a maximum of a couple of hundred nuclear weapons for your security. So, so I think it, it speaks to how overwhelmingly in the United States and, and Russian nuclear strategic thinking is still embedded in, in the Cold War. Pavel, so um, do they have the money for this? Where are they going to get it? Uh, the very short answer is no. It's not sustainable. It is very seriously unsustainable. And the proof positive of that is that the rearmament program approved is, was supposed to last for 10 years, 10 to 20, but in fact there should be another one from the year 15 to 25 and they cannot design that. So there is no current, um, uh, current plan how to cut, what, uh, where to economize, and the political leadership in essence remains in denial of the fact of the economic crisis, which doesn't help at all. They cannot put together a meaningful state budget for a year, so they don't really know how to, how to deal with all this grandiose plan designed. The, uh, the fact of the matter is that they will have very soon to make decisions about what to cut, where to economize. And my feeling is that the priority on strategic modernization will continue at the expense of some other programs, but maybe in the Navy, maybe in the Air Force. And if that priority is sustained, the more there is a political pressure of finding a way to, uh, to put that in, in, into play. We are kind of cutting everything else, we're investing in that. What is the use of it? Okay. Um, a couple of questions here in the front row. Uh, I'm Eugenia Osgood, and I spent several years working on theater and strategic nuclear weapons of the Soviet Union. And uh, uh, be careful to speak into the microphone. So we'll yeah. Careful. Well, the uh, the big problem, as far as I can see, or what everybody believes, is the strategic uh, rather rather uh, theater. Uh, uh, into, uh, the, the theater balance in Europe. Uh, in 19, something similar happened in the 19, early 1980s, and uh, that's when Alexei Arbatov, who is an outstanding uh, arms controller, first, of course, Soviet, now he is with the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and he has written an extraordinary article, which I recommend to everybody, about the deterioration and the death, basically, the end of arms control. He views the current... Can, can we get to the, to the question in this, though? Uh, the, the dangerous, this, this is the most dangerous part of the 21st century so far because the, uh, there is no longer the bipolarity of the Cold no, War, but the there question. is a very, please, very, please to a question. a very dangerous situation where uh, 
Okay, maybe we can. Well, the Soviet, the, the, the remarks that are being made by all the Soviet government of representatives, including President Putin, show that they simply don't know enough about what a nuclear war in Europe could do. And, and that, that is the great danger. Okay, thank you. Um, Charles Osgood, a retired federal employee. Um, one thing that was never discussed on the nuclear part is the weapons themselves. It's all been delivery. Uh, apparently, uh, we are engaged or will be engaged when I read in the newspapers in uh, checking over and making sure the darn things work. And uh, since the, the test ban treaty that's been done with uh, computers, and uh, along the way, apparently, uh, they discovered ways to make them better <laughs> and uh, actually work, maybe. So, um, yeah, <laughs> well, that's one thing about the test ban treaty. And so the, the question, I guess, is uh, uh, are the Russians doing the same thing, and to what effect are they uh, possibly worried about uh, our weapons actually working uh, more, a uh, higher percentage than they might have before? Why don't we take uh, one more question in the second row here before we come back uh, thank you. Uh, Diane Perlman, George Mason School for Conflict Analysis and Resolution. Anyway, as long as I'm following a Charles Osgood, there was another Charles Osgood who had a strategy of grit, graduated reciprocated initiatives and tension reduction. And everything that you're talking about is very provocative and escalatory. And you talk a lot about sending signals to one side, and it very often happens that the other side receives a different message than the one that you think that you're sending and it provokes escalation. So my question is, and also deterrence, Ralph K. White said deterrence works if it's accompanied by drastic tension reduction. So what about other like second order change strategies like mediation, tension reduction, nothing deals, it's all dealing with a symptom and not the underlying conflict. And, you know, so what about mediation, conflict transformation, creative strategies of conflict transformation? Because there's no end game to, the, to any of this. Who wants to attack those questions? Um, it, is, uh, it is a difficult subject matter. And, uh, on the weapons, uh, certainly no testing and weapons are not getting any younger. And a computer simulation can tell you only that much. And in principle, in Russia, they're not very good at computer simulation. The best hope they have is that many weapon systems in the Soviet Union tradition were built to last. And, you know, it, it goes for, uh, for um, every weapon system, including the, including the nuclear warheads. But uh, in this particular aspect, very pragmatically, testing makes sense. You, you want to be sure that your old weapons are still functional, uh, that, they uh, that they can uh, perform. So uh, whatever are other considerations, from that particular angle, yes, you, in principle, if you are maintaining nuclear arsenal, you need a test. And uh, that certainly goes uh, very much against the NPT, uh, NPT regime, and certainly it will be very difficult to have another conference, uh, even with that level of success, if you are uh, returning, uh, returning to testing. And at least in this respect, Russia is so far trying to play uh, 
um, responsibly. But as for the question about possibility of finding a way around this very linear um, confrontational uh, situation we, uh, we are facing, uh, you know, typically it's not about the channels as such, it's about the political will, uh, about ability to listen about the ability to, kind of to uh, attempt to comprehend what is, uh, what, is, what is going on and not just to be obsessed with your own fears and with, uh, with the very limited uh, 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 circle of trusted aides. Uh, after that, you trust nobody. And that situation is not really very uh, conductive to opening uh, second channels to, uh, to experiment with uh, attempts to build trust and so on. Um, so, Steve, I wonder if you take up those questions too, but also following on on what Pavel said, um, given that there are both political and actually stockpile incentives for Russians to think about testing, um, should the U.S. be thinking about sharing some of their testing um, yeah. technology with the Russians? Yeah. yeah. Well, let me, actually, this will be a point where I think I disagree with Pavel. Uh, um, so hard to do. Yeah. <laughs> now, for, uh, first of all, I mean, I, I think the technologies, I mean, the United States has what's called the Stockpile Stewardship Program, which thus far the directors of the national laboratories and the head of strategic command at the end of each year say to the president, sir, with this program, we are confident in the reliability of the weapons without having to resort to nuclear testing. Uh, my guess is that actually sharing those kinds of techniques and computer programs with the Russians would be hard, not just because they're very sophisticated, but also it might reveal lots of things about how we put our nuclear weapons together that we probably wouldn't want to share with the Russians and vice versa. But I, I guess where I would disagree with Pavel is I actually think um, if you don't have testing and then you have maybe less than 100 percent confidence in your nuclear weapons, working, that may not be a bad thing, <laughs> because, and this gets back into the bizarre, you know, Cold War era, you know, if you're contemplating a first strike against the other guy, you need to be sure all of your nuclear weapons are going to work. And if you have a question mark saying maybe some of them don't work, that's a disincentive for a first strike. On the other hand, if you're talking about retaliation, I don't have to have all of my weapons work, just some of the weapons work. So I, I actually think there's, you know, having a little bit of uncertainty there is not a bad thing for purposes of strategic stability. Uh, the question about the end of arms control, um, I, I personally wish that we could have moved beyond the New START Treaty. I think there was actually proposals from the Obama administration fairly early on to go beyond New START, both in terms of reducing deployed strategic weapons, but also getting into the questions of reserve strategic weapons and non-strategic weapons. In fact, there was a proposal out there that had the Russians said yes for the first time ever you would have had U.S. and Russian negotiators talking about all of the nuclear weapons in the arsenal. Because what the New START Treaty covers is it covers deployed strategic weapons. It covers perhaps 35, 40 percent of the total U.S. arsenal and probably a similar proportion on the Russian side. Um, in the current environment, well, first of all, the last several years, the Russians have not been prepared to move beyond the New START Treaty. In the current environment, in the next couple of years, it's hard to see that changing. Uh, but the optimist, and I try to always find an optimistic note, and he says, it may change around 2018, 2019. Because at that point, you're two years out from the expiration of the New START Treaty, which has a 10-year term. And it does seem to me that the Russians, as did the Soviets, always liked to have some kind of a strategic arms control agreement in place, because that was valuable in two ways, in terms of capping American strategic capabilities. 
And that's going to be more important in the early 2020s when we're beginning to crank up our modernization program, but also in terms of providing uh, a, a degree of transparency and information and such. So my guess is the arms control process between Washington and Moscow may not make much progress in the next couple of years, but I think around 2018, 2019, the sides may come back to it. And then hopefully they can do more than just extend the new START tree, but actually begin to grapple with some of these other questions and bring the weapons numbers down. So that's our plea for long-term funding for the arms control initiative. Um, <laughs> uh, Hans, did you want to come in on that? Um, on, the, on this issue of warhead, um, just you know, building on what Steve said here, um, and also Powell to some extent, um, so the, you know, in my understanding, the, the fundamental difference with the U.S. approach with nuclear warhead maintenance after the end of the Cold War um, and ending um, reliance on nuclear testing has been um, the stockpile stewardship program and just relying on refabricating, um, furbishing, um, but also modernizing, but, but uh, working with the same warhead types, basically, and extending them. The Russian approach is different. Um, because they don't have the, a stockpile stewardship program in the way we know it, so they tend to reproduce warheads when they've, you know, when they age out uh, instead. Um, the United States just has a program now that is uh, more than half, uh, halfway through production of something in the order of uh, 1,200 warheads, uh, the W76 warhead for the Navy's uh, ballistic missile submarine to extend the life of that weapon system uh, for another 30 plus years. Um, right after that comes the B-61, or we're building a new guided version of the B-61 gravity bomb. Um, and after that come other warheads for the ballistic missile. But, but none of them envision resorting to nuclear testing. But it does resort to sort of other forms of testing, not nuclear explosion, but there's plenty of testing. It is hydrodynamic testing. It's uh, simulated testing. You name it. Um, so it's a very expansive program, and the Russians just don't have that, so their approach is very different. Um, on the death of arms control, um, absolutely. Um, I, I don't think there's a death of arms control. <laughs> I think arms control comes up when, when, you know, there's an urgent need for the countries to do it. And I think there always is, to some extent, between the United States and Russia. That's been our tradition. Um, uh, Putin has already said that once we get to the end of the New START uh, treaty, he will be willing to think about this. <laughs> God knows what the situation is at that time. But, uh, but even if things go, go worse, I think there is a real incentive for even national strategic security interest to try to cap what another country can do. Um, so that is a really powerful motivator, I think, in continuing uh, nuclear arms control. Okay. Um, why don't we uh, come up here to Jonas in the third row, and then we'll go to the back. Right there. Thank you. It's been a really interesting discussion so far. Um, I was kind of mostly directed to Steve on sort of the distinction you just touched upon between strategic and non-strategic uh, weapons. First of all, if this distinction sort of still makes sense, it's very much a sort of Cold War relic and, and, and combined a little bit with some of the scenarios that you talked about as well where we could see in Russia the sort of escalation type of scenario where tactical nuclear weapons could play a component. So my first would be whether it sort of makes sense in the sense that all use of nuclear weapons is strategic, that you will trigger a nuclear war, or whether you could see scenarios and, and uh, combined with what you talked about, uh, their uh, military doctrine. Uh, well, hold on a second, Steve. I don't, we, 
Were there some questions in the back of the room? Yeah. Uh, why don't we take two questions way back there? I can't really see those people. No. Uh, Hello, yeah. I'm Jeff Price with Johns Hopkins Sites Foreign Policy Institute. Um, could you say a little more about submarine-launched cruise missiles? Always, always a fun topic. <laughs> U.S. or Russian? Uh, Russian. Russian. Oh. Attacks us. Russian. Okay, uh, I think there's one more question toward the back there. Uh, Anne Sisk, U.S. Air Force. In the past couple of years, there were uh, a couple of news items that there was a, a lot of changes that needed to be made in our nuclear force, especially with our ICBM crews. Uh, wondering if you could speak on sort of the Russian perception of that or reaction to it. Okay, Steve, you want to start with the um, question to you? I'll, I'll start with the uh, strategic, non-strategic. I mean, it's one of these things that uh, we use in the arms control world that's probably becoming a bit outdated. My own personal view is if a nuclear weapon goes off anywhere near me, it's strategic. Um, but I would argue it's time to move past because And you're beginning to see some of these lines blur. So uh, Hans mentioned the modernization of the B-61 bomb. You know, right now there are four variants of the B-61, uh, one of which is considered strategic, three which are considered tactical. At the end of this modernization program, there will be one variant of the B-61. If that is deployed with the U.S. Air Force in Europe, it will be tactical. And if it's deployed at Whiteman Air Force Base in Missouri for the B-2, it'll be strategic. And it's the same weapon. Uh, so I would actually argue arms control now ought to move to a place where you treat a nuclear weapon as a nuclear weapon as a nuclear weapon. And so in, in my ideal arms control world, the next approach would have a U.S.-Russian negotiation where you'd limit X. My number would be somewhere around 2,500 nuclear weapons on both sides, and that counts everything that's a nuclear weapon. And then you might have a sublimit in that <clears throat> that would limit deployed strategic weapons because d deployed weapons that are on missiles, uh, on submarines, or uh, on, on intercontinental ballistic missiles, those are the most readily usable. So you might want to constrain those uh, in a special way. But, but uh, it would make sense uh, for the next round of negotiations to begin to address all weapons. It's something the Russians resist, but the Russians actually, they, they contradict themselves on this one because... At the same time that they say, well, we want to hold off and not address non-strategic nuclear weapons, they also say it's now time to bring everybody else in. If you look at what everybody else has, Britain is the only country in the world that has weapons that would be categorized only as strategic under the New START uh, Treaty. Everybody else has stuff that would be categorized as non-strategic. So if, if the Russians really want to get to a point where you bring in the third countries, you're not going to get there unless you begin to talk about American and Russian non-strategic weapons. And the simplest way to do that would be a limit that covers all nuclear weapons, regardless of deployed, non-deployed, strategic, non-strategic, with maybe a sublimit on deployed strategic systems. Hans, do you want to take some of those? Yeah, there's an interesting um, – in the debate about tactical nuclear weapons, you'll quite often hear this uh, comparison that the Russians have a 10-to-1 advantage. And it's very interesting because, you know – so it, to some people, that is a significant thing. Um, but I think to the U.S. military, it's like, so what? I mean, I don't really think that is there's an issue for them um, because uh, they don't see a military need for that categorization anymore. 
Um, and in fact, I think the U.S. military very early on moved out of that kind of thinking. Even back in the late 1980s, starting to unilaterally withdraw tactical weapons from the Navy, um, throughout the 90s, you know, wiped out the Army weapons very quickly. Um, Clinton denuclearized the surface fleet. Uh, Obama administration, even though he was beaten up by Congress over threatening to reduce nuclear forces so unilaterally, um, one of his first acts was unilaterally withdraw and retire the uh, sea launch uh, Tomahawk cruise missile nuclear capability. Um, so I think the U.S. has just fundamentally moved out of that way of thinking, and now they are thinking more about, to the extent it is about nuclear, that, like Steve says, all nuclear is strategic, um, but you can use the strategic nuclear in uh, lesser or greater scenarios in different ways. And so they, they think more about you know, turning up and down the heat, so to speak, in, in, in different ways than it's about a particular group of weapons that has to serve a certain, you know, tactical battlefield function. Um, but it's interesting also if you look at the Russian tactical nuclear weapons inventory. I frankly think that a lot of what's there is there because it was left over. Um, that you have air delivered, you have air defense, you have anti-ballistic missile defense, you have... Um, Army, some army ballistic yes. missiles, uh, and a lot of Navy weapons still left. And so they see a need for this across the field of scenarios, apparently. Or maybe it's just the, the, the military services that don't want to give them up. I mean, it's very hard to read exactly why they live on. But I think there's a trend in the Russian military that even what is left of the non-strategic nuclear forces are reducing, even without an arms control treaty simply because of it, a lot of it's old crap. I mean, excuse my French, but I think that is a lot of old systems that need to go. Uh, we're seeing signs that some of their attack submarines are losing capability in, in the future. Um, some of their surface ships are losing capability in the future, simply because they're shifting to modern conventional systems that can be used for what nuclear cruise missiles were used for in the past. So I think that's, a, that's an important development that's happening. On their Russian submarine uh, cruise missiles, uh, sea launch cruise missiles, there was a question about that. Well, so they have a whole host of them, uh, if you will, a handful of them, that were designed to shoot aircraft carriers, uh, surface battle groups, um, um, or be used as land attack missiles. Um, and some of those are being phased out. Some are living on for a little while longer <laughs> uh, until they will be phased out. Um, others see a continuing mission. For example, land attack cruise missile, I think, will have more of a future mission still. Um, there are rumors that they're developing a new nuclear uh, cruise missile called the Caliper, which also exists in a conventional uh, format or several different conventional formats, by the way. Um, and they still have a leftover from the Cold War, the SSN-21. Um, the new attack submarine in the Yasin, the new attack submarine has been equipped with a nuclear capability. Um, and so that force, type of force structure will ex uh, continue in the future. Air defense systems are becoming more advanced. Um, frankly speaking, possible in the future that they would not need a nuclear capability for air defense systems anymore. Um, ballistic missile defense systems, well, I mean, they have one of the two uh, systems that are still operational, um, apparently still with a nuclear uh, warhead. Um, that system is being upgraded, but it's a local system around Moscow, so they're going to get it if you, they use it. 
And so it's kind of, you know, it's kind of an odd way of, of, of planning, if you will. So the only way we can really compare tactical nuclear weapons, I think, between um, our kind of posture and the Russian posture is in the air-delivered weapons, because that's the only where, that's the only place we both have some kind of nuclear, you know, non-strategic uh, capability, if you will. Um, what was the other issue? Glitches. There was the question about ICBM glitches, how the Russians view that. I really don't know. You, you can probably speak better to that. I haven't heard anything about that. I'm very sorry of not being able to provide a, a specific answer. On the, on the submarines, I probably may add that uh, it is, for some reasons, exactly that class of submarines that Russia, uh, Soviet Union and uh, Russia had very bad luck with the, with the subs. Both Komsomolets lost in sea and Kursk lost at sea were submarines of that class. And the new generation, yes, in class. Uh, supposed to be uh, uh, going on much faster than it does. It's only one submarine which now is uh, undergoing trial and it's undergoing them for a while already. Something isn't quite right with that submarine with Severodvinsk. And they're not really saying much about that. Unlike with Bulava, where more or less information you, you have, uh, you, you cannot hide there. Uh, you can at least keep it quiet, but something isn't obviously working uh, well with that program. And on non-strategic weapons, I think it's still striking that having so many of them, uh, in the Russian military, not training to use them. There is very little of field manuals about what to do with them. Uh, a lot is being said and demonstrated and you know, trained and exercised with strategic, with non-strategic, with technical new weapons. There is a lot of them and nothing is really happening with them. You don't see um, in any way, you know, many things you cannot hide except for, kind of, for in their storages. But troops are really not training for this environment at all. So um, we're, we're just about out of time, but I want to ask the panelists sort of to, uh, mm -hmm. in one last question, maybe they could each take about 30 seconds on, and it's a simple question, really. Um, given that we started with Putin's nuclear threats and the sort of tenor of the conversation has been that that isn't, as Pavel just said, reflected in the reality on the ground, that, the, that, the, this, that there is a certain amount of strategic stability in the Russian and, and U.S. arsenals, which isn't being dramatically eroded, uh, what should we do in response to Putin's nuclear threats? And I suppose the answer can be nothing, but I'd be interested <laughs> if, it's, if, it's, if there's another answer. Uh, why don't we start at the end, and, and Hans? Well, I wouldn't say nothing, but I should certainly say, uh, you know, please don't overreact. I mean, I think we've had over the last year and two uh, a, a fair amount of overreaction to this. Um, and it's been said by, by others, but I do think that beyond everything else, I think the Russian, um, the issue with the Russian menace, if you will, these days is, is not a nuclear one. It's, it's a, uh, you know, it's, it's all that sort of little green men border activity type of stuff and very low tier types of, of conflict um, challenges. That's where the challenge is. Um, so we have to be careful not because we hear some official statements that said, well, we would consider using nuclear weapons and therefore say, aha, you know, gee, that means that they're lowering the threshold. Um, so I think it's very important not to overreact. Um, but, but it's also important to react to some extent, but I think it's more about challenging the wisdom of using nuclear language so loosely. Um, that is the problem. 
uh, and especially if that style reflects that uh, the current generation of, of Russian plan, military planners and, and policy strategists just don't know very much about it from the past or haven't spent a whole lot of time on it or, or what the situation is. Um, so I think, you know, trying to, trying to have conversations with the Russians about what the implications of potential use of nuclear weapons is might go, uh, you know, pretty long way. I, no, Steve, I, conversations? I would, I would second both those points. We, we ought not to be overreacting to what we see because the actual programs are far less threatening than the rhetoric would suggest. Uh, but I, I, it would be appropriate uh, to call Putin out on, on this kind of irresponsible talk. Look at what a Barack Obama has said over the last eight years. Every time he talks about nuclear weapons, it's about reductions. It's about reducing their role in American security policy. You know, at one point, it was about even their elimination. Uh, and, and there ought to be a certain amount of uh, pushback rhetorically against the Russian president when he uses uh, language that suggests he has a very loose understanding of these weapons and their potential effects. Pavel? I agree, more? and I think it is also possible to find uh, allies with that in the rather unexpected camp. There are very strong anti-nuclear sentiments in Europe, in Germany in particular. And it's one thing when uh, Putin is called uh, from the official quarters, but I think to mobilize that sentiment is also a very important resource for, for uh, foreign policy, that uh, nobody is going to respond in kind, but uh, there is a lot of opposition to, uh, to, to the rhetoric, to the activities, to, uh, to um, uh, potential nuclear testing in, the, in this sense, and it's a really a broad coalition. It's not only strategic planners, it's also grassroots. Okay, well, I don't think it would be possible for you to overreact in thanking the panel for excellent uh, presentations, so please join me in doing that. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.